Good morning, everybody. Morning. My name's Eric. I'm on staff here. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Judges, chapter 13. It's in page 154 of these red Bibles, uh, if you want to use one of those. And uh, I kind of invite you just to maybe mark that with your, with your finger. We've got a, a whole, whole lot of information to get through this morning. And, uh, and I'm going to have to fly through some of it. So uh, ask your forgiveness if things get a little uh, too, too fast. Uh, in 1994, the industrial, electronica, rock, metal band uh, called Nine Inch Nails released a record called The Downward Spiral. Um, it was a record about, uh, a concept record of a guy who is trying to reject everything around him, reject friendships, reject uh, relationships, family, sexuality, politics, religion, God, and then ultimately reject life. Uh, the, the record kind of ends basically in suicide. Um, the, the front man and writer and kind of vision behind the band, Trent Reznor, said this, the idea behind the album is of someone who sheds everything around them to a potential nothingness but through career, religion, relationship, belief, and so on. I wanted to explore the idea of somebody who systematically throws or uncovers every layer of what he's surrounded with, from personal relationships to religion to questioning the whole situation, um, someone dissecting his own ability to relate to other people. It, uh, the record, again, dealt with dehumanization, violence, disease, society, drugs, sex, the, the record is dark, it's dense, it's brilliant. It's considered to be one of the best records of the 1990s by most rock critics. Um, it's an amazing piece of art, but it is very disturbing to listen to. Uh, in fact, at one point, the, the producer of the record is a guy nicknamed Flood, and uh, um, I love the music business because you can just have random nicknames like that. I'm still waiting to get mine, but... Um, but he's a big-name producer, worked with U2, worked a lot. Of, he, he walked out of the session at one point because there was a track that they were doing that had become so disturbing and so dark and so just full of anti-everything, anti-life, anti-God, that the producer was just like, I can't be a part of this track, and left the session. Um, and I start, I start this talk this way is because... The Downward Spiral is one of the nicknames that I personally have given to the book of Judges. Uh, I've also called it Men Behaving Badly, um, How Low Can You Go. Um, see, we've been wrestling through this book as sort of teachers and pastors for weeks now. Read through it a couple times, read the story of Samson multiple times. And um, I am just want to kind of take a second and just to tell you personally how disturbing I have found this book of the Bible. It's full of murder, torture, betrayal, ambition, all the things that kind of don't make sense from a, you know, Jesus point of view. And I think that a lot of people who struggle with the Christian faith look at books like the book of Judges and go like, see, how can that God, how can your loving God have a book that is so full of the, I'll just say it, of the ugliness that is in the book of Judges. So I have personally like just kind of wrestled through this thing over and, and over again. And you see, we're used to this idea that when God shows divine mercy, like so in the New Testament, you know, Jesus interacts with kind of 
people who are, who are kind of a questionable character all the time, but every time he has sort of an encounter with them, most of the time, like, they kind of wake up to God's love, and they're like, wow, God's awesome, you know, like, and then they kind of turn their life around. In Judges, it's like this story of, like, God shows mercy to Israel, and Israel responds by basically being worse. And then God shows mercy again, and Israel, and, it, and it's not like they make the same mistakes. They make new, worse mistakes. And it's really, really been a challenge to me. Um, but we get to this story of, of Samson, and if you're familiar with the Sunday school Samson, um, we're going to get rid of him today, I, I hope. Because Samson is, in some ways, is like the worst of the whole lot um, in very subtle ways. But before we get to Samson, we have to kind of fill in the gap because Pastor Mark taught us about Gideon last week. We have Samson, and we have a few judges in between. So uh, in a real short space of time, we're going to walk through the sort of um, judges that are between Gideon and Samson. We're going to finish up Gideon. So uh, Gideon, if you remember, Mark uh, talked about how God adjusted Gideon's army downward to the, to the level that God was uh, kind of happy with. Then Gideon comes up with this brilliant battle plan against the Midianites, surprises them, shocks them, defeats them. So Israel is liberated, and the, and the leaders of Israel are so ecstatic that they come to Gideon and go, hey, we want you to rule over us. We want you to be essentially our king. And Gideon says, no, I, I can't do that because there is no king over Israel except God. So very rightly, Gideon makes the right choice. You know, I, I can't do this. Our king is Yahweh. That was always laid out for Israel. You're not going to have a king like other nations. I'm your king. Well, immediately after he does that, sort of to celebrate his victory, he takes a bunch of precious metals and he weaves together this beautiful priestly robe. It's, it, I, it's brilliant, it's beautiful. But what begins to happen is that Israel begins to worship the robe as an idol. So you have this guy who started his rise as sort of the leader of Israel. He started his rise by destroying an idol of Baal, an altar, and then wittingly or unwittingly ends up constructing his own idol and altar that Israel begins to worship. Uh, so it's kind of like you started out really well, Gideon. I'm not sure how, how you ended. Um, Gideon has a ton of sons, at least 71 that we know about. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> So one of the sons' name is Abimelech, and, and interestingly, Abimelech's name means my father is king. And so it kind of brings into question of this idea of like, well, we, Gideon said he didn't want to be king, but then he named his son, my father is king. So it's kind of like one of those things, like we're not really sure what happened there, um, but it is curious. Well, Abimelech, when he and his uh, half-brothers come of age because Abimelech was a son of a, um, a prostitute. Um, when they come of age, Abimelech decides, hey, I'm not going to wait on God to kind of raise up a leader. I think I'm the guy. So he has all of his bro- half-brothers murdered, 70 of them, Pew, gone. Um, and in his story, 
uh, as I just said, like God in the book of Judges raises up leaders. There's that phrase of God raised up Gideon. God does this, raise up. Not in Abimelech's case. He's never raised up by God. And when he rules Israel, it's a period of great rebellion and unrest. So there's a couple other judges that happen, just kind of one line in the Bible. And we're, then we're brought to this guy named Jephthah. Jephthah is, a, is another uh, leader. And at, and at this point, interestingly enough, there, Israel is, is fighting and the rulers ask him to come. Hey, come rule over us. Come be our leader. We're having these battles. And you know who they were fighting at this point? They're fighting themselves. So the tribes of Israel are now engaged in civil war amongst themselves. They come into the land of Canaan to clear out sort of all their enemies. At this point, they're like engaged in killing each other. But uh, they make Jephthah the ruler and the kind of the, the military leader. He agrees to do it. And he, uh, he's going into battle against the tribe of Ephraim. And he's a little bit nervous about the outcome. So he goes to God and says, God, I tell you what, I really want this victory. If you give me victory you know, tomorrow in my battle plan, I will sacrifice to you whatever comes out of my house when I come home. Yes, oh no. Um, because I got to thinking, like if a, if a military leader wins a victory and he comes home to his house, like what's going to come out of his house? Like a cabbage? Um, I, you know... The, the explicit implication is that Jephthah has just told God, I will kill a human being if you give me victory on the battlefield tomorrow. And this is at this point how bad Israel has become. Because if you're familiar with God's story, God doesn't play this way. Uh, especially making deals with him and especially saying, oh, by the way, I'll kill a human for you, God. I, I know you're into that sort of thing. He's not. You know, only two times in Scripture, really, does it even come close. And that's Abraham and Isaac, where God stops Abraham from killing Isaac. And then Jesus. So Jephthah makes a vow he really shouldn't have made. And that kind of brings us to Samson. Um, we're going to pick up the story in, uh, in the first verse of chapter 13. So again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them for 40 years. Now these are the same Philistines that are going to be fighting King Saul and King David. So now they're on the scene and uh, an angel comes to a, a woman who has never had a child, not supposed to be able to have a child. The angel comes to a woman and says, you are going to have a son and he is going to basically start liberating Israel from the Philistines. So angel coming to a barren woman, does that sound familiar at all? kind of the way God uh, likes to operate. Um, but he says something more. He says, furthermore, be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. Now, just a little background about the Nazarite vow. It comes out of the book of Numbers. And whenever, um, whenever someone kind of wanted to go through a more intense kind of, uh, they felt like maybe God just wanted to do something special through them, or they just kind of needed to bring themselves into a deeper alignment with who God wanted them to be, they would do this thing called a Nazarite vow. And, and it was a, an act where you just said, I'm going to do this. 
and then you were not uh, allowed to drink wine, not allowed to drink vinegar. Who would want to drink vinegar? I don't know. Um, you could not eat grapes. You could not eat raisins. You had to take everything that you already had to avoid uh, as a Jew and then go one step higher. So couldn't, all, couldn't do all of this. Your hair was grown out so that you could show everyone you were under, uh, under a vow. You know, so if you're walking down the street and like, see that guy with the, you know, three-foot dreads, like, that's, that, he's Nazarite. You know, he's set aside. You could not be around a dead body of any kind. Father, mother, and this is what's interesting. You could undergo a Nazarite vow for any length of time, um, a year, three years, seven years. Uh, Samson's told that he's going to be under it for his entire life. But what's crazy is that if you violated the Nazarite vow, you had to cut your hair off and start over. So if you had said, I'm going to be a Nazarite for seven years, and you got into the fifth year of your Nazarite vow, and you were walking down the street and somebody dropped dead beside you, you had to cut your hair off, uh, go to the priest, be kind of, you know, become cleansed again, become officially, and, and it's reset. You don't get to pick up in the fifth year. You're back to year one. So it's a pretty intense thing like undertaken when, when Israel just needed something, uh, kind of a little extra commitment to Yahweh. And that is what Samson's mother's told that he's going to be. And it, in fact, it starts with her, which is really strange. Like, you're going to start the Nazarite vow for your son. And we can only assume that she kept the vow and that Samson is born under the vow. And then in verse 24, it says, uh, her son was born, she named him Samson, and the Lord blessed him as he grew up. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he lived in Mahanadan, which is located between the towns of Zorah and Eshtael. All right, so here we go. Um, this is the way the book of Judges has worked. Uh, there's a little something that's just kind of a rhythm and a cycle of redemption. Let's put that slide up. The cycle of redemption in the book of Judges is that there's oppression by different groups of people. Um, Israel cries out. Yahweh hears. The Holy Spirit falls on one individual, you know, Gideon or, or anybody. The judge rises up and fights a battle and uh, there's liberation for Israel, okay? This is kind of just what's repeated. Samson's cycle is a little bit different. So there is no call. The, book, the, chap, the, the chapter just says that the Philistines began to oppress Israel, but they never cry out, okay? So therefore, Yahweh, you know, essentially doesn't hear, but by his own initiative, um, there's oppression, an angel visits, the spirit stirs up in Samson, what we just read, and Samson begins to rise up. So as a leader, or as a reader, I'm sorry, as a reader, you're prepared that Samson's going to rise up, right? And here we go. Liberation of Israel, right? Does this make sense? This is like simple. I can even do that math. Well, uh, the, the word is, is basically prepare to be disappointed because this is not at all what's about to happen. So the Spirit has stirred in Samson. And uh, the very next verse, the beginning of chapter 14, Samson goes to this town called Timnah, which is essentially a Philistine town. And he sees a woman there that he likes. He goes to his parents and says, hey, I've just found a woman in Timnah. She's Philistine. Go and get her for me. I want to marry her. That's kind of the way marriages happen in that culture. That part of it is not so shocking. What is shocking is that God's people were not supposed to intermarry with anyone. 
And if by the odd chance, if you wanted to cross that boundary, okay, you, you inter, you're going to intermarry with somebody outside the, the, the nation of Israel. Surely you wouldn't intermarry with somebody who's oppressing your people, right? Right? Wrong. Um, so uh, Samson's father and mother go, can't you, find, uh, you know, can't you find a nice Israelite girl, you know? And Samson uh, basically says, uh, Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. Sorry, guys. It's right there. His father and mother, this is interesting, his father and mother did not realize the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. Okay, so this is kind of the first little clue of Samson's character. He basically says, I know we're not supposed to intermarry. She's really good looking. I'm, I'm just going to go for it. So make this happen, mom and dad. So uh, quickly after that, Samson and his mother and father are going to Timnah to, I'm sure, arrange part of the, the marriage. And they see a lion. And the, 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 uh, the text says that the spirit of the Lord fell on Samson. And it actually is better translated that says the spirit of the Lord jumped on Samson, which I think is just an awesome visual of like the Holy Spirit just kind of <laughs> jumping on somebody. Um, but at any rate, he gets the lion, tears it apart, kills the lion. Woohoo, right? Except... As Nazarite, he has just violated that part of his vow. No dead things for the Nazarite. So essentially, this is not a problem. He just has to cut his hair, go to the priest, except Samson does none of that. Just keeps on going. In fact, uh, a short time after that, the text says he's coming back by the lion's carcass again, and he notices that a swarm of bees has built a nest in it, and there's honey there. And um, there's a really, really interesting story just about the fact that there's bees in this carcass that I can't get to, but if you ask me about it, I'm so geeked out about this, I'm glad to tell you about it. But so Samson goes to the dead lion, scoops honey out of the bee's nest, and eats it. So how, how much has he violated it now? And then, but wait, takes the honey to his parents, says, here, have some honey. And now he's defiled them and neglects to mention, hey, this honey, by the way, came from a dead body. You might want to go to the priest. You see the, a pattern that's emerging here? Okay, so this is when it gets really interesting. Uh, the wedding is, 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 is planned, and part of the tradition in that culture is that the groom was never supposed to be alone. So the, so the, the in-laws, the future in-laws, would provide a, a party, an entourage, essentially, for the groom to kind of party with and just hang out with. So his bride-to-be... Um, his, their parents give, them 30, give him 30 young men to just kind of hang out with. And Samson says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to buy you guys 30 new outfits, new outfits for the wedding, if you can answer this riddle. So they said, let's hear the riddle. So Samson says, out of the one who eats came something, 
Out of the one who eats came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. I always think of the hobbit when I read this because I'm like, who's going to get this riddle? Um, So they can't solve it. And they go to Samson's bride-to-be and they say, we can't solve this riddle. And she's like, I can't do anything. And they're like, oh, oh, wait, you can do something. And if you don't, by the way, we're going to burn your house down. Oh, and when we burn the house down, your parents are going to be in it, and you're going to be in it too. So she's a little bit more motivated now. <laughs> and she goes to Samson, and in a, in, in a scene that's going to be repeated with a woman named Delilah, she begins to pester Samson. Samson, tell, him, tell me the answer to the riddle, Samson. Samson won't do it. And finally, uh, she plays the ultimate card. Samson, you don't love me. If you loved me, you'd tell me the answer to the riddle. (laughs) Finally, he relents. He tells her the answer to the riddle. She tells the guys. The guys tell Samson, ha, we got it. Um, And so Samson now owes these guys 30 new outfits. And remember what he's supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be liberating Israel from the Philistines. So, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. He went to the town of Ashkelon, killed 30 men, took their belongings, and gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. But Samson was furious about what had happened, and he went back home to live with his mom and dad, So his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at the wedding. What? Who? What? What just happened? What just happened? Like, you can't invent this stuff. Samson is supposed to be liberating his people, and instead he murders 30 innocent men to pay off a gambling debt. Is this any way to go about the liberation of your people from oppression? Maybe it is, but it, it certainly doesn't make sense to me. His wife was given in marriage to the man who had been sent. I feel like if his future in-laws knew Samson at all, they would know this is not a wise decision that they've made. So Samson comes back after pouting or, or whatever he's doing. He says, okay, I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready to marry, marry this woman. And his in-laws go, oh, well, you left, so she's married to the best man. Um, here's her sister. She's really good looking, too. And this is kind of like, uh-oh, what's going to happen next? So Samson says, this time, I cannot be blamed for everything I'm going to do to you Philistines. <laughs> so he goes out, catches 300 foxes. He tied their tails together in pairs, and he fastened a torch to each pair of tails. Then he lit the torches and let the foxes run through the grain fields of the Philistines. Yes, it's supposed to be funny. He burned all their grain to the ground, including the sheaves and the uncut grain. He also destroyed their vineyards and olive groves. Economic devastation. So he brings that to the Philistines. Now, okay, so you can kind of say, well, maybe now he's starting to work against the Philistines. But are his, like, are his motives good? Like, where's he operating from? So the Philistines now, at this point, are, are pretty ticked. And they go, who, who did this? And they go, oh, Samson, remember that guy and with the riddle? And, and oh, and Samson was supposed to marry that girl over there. And, uh, and so the Philistines take his bride-to-be, and they um, burn her up, and her parents too. 
<laughs> because you did this, Samson vowed, I won't rest until I take my revenge on you. So he attacked the Philistines with great fury and killed many of them. And he went to live in a cave in the rock of Edom. Okay. So, vengeance begets vengeance. Violence makes violence. And we're not done yet. So the Philistines are ticked, really ticked now, and they start coming after Samson. And this time, they're starting to get the tribe of Judah involved. So now it's like, oh, okay, now. Now Israel, now a whole tribe's getting involved. Now maybe the liberation is going gonna, is gonna to happen. Now Samson is going to wake up. All right, so the Philistines are like, we're going to go after, we're going after this guy, Judah, and, and the tribe of, of Judah is, is kind of like, who, who, Samson, what's happening? Um, so uh, Judah is now getting involved in this sort of venge, revenge brawl, and they go to Samson. 3,000 men of Judah went to get Samson at the cave in the rock of Edom. They said to Samson, hey, don't you realize the Philistines rule over us? What are you doing to us? Samson replies, I only did to them what they did to me. And this is, like, this is like my house on Saturday morning with my kids. I mean, this is what a six-year-old says. I only did to him what he did to me. This is the best you have to offer us, Samson? Uh, so Judah says, um, the tribe of Judah says, this, this is not working, Samson. We're going to tie you up. We're going to hand you over to the Philistines. Samson says, okay. Right before it's supposed to happen, they've got him tied up. Samson, you know, bursts through all the ropes. And then probably in the, the, uh, the episode that you might be most familiar with, he looks around for a weapon, finds what? The jawbone of a donkey and sets out, like, I don't know what the technique of killing with a jawbone is, but kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, which is like, yeah, now we're getting it. You know, the Philistines are going down. So Samson gets done with this. And he, uh, as most, a lot of warriors and kings do in the Bible, he kind of makes a poem or a song just to celebrate and remember what he's done. So he writes uh, a, little, a little thing. goes something like this. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. I seriously, no. no. Um, I don't know how the song went. Which is fine, right? Except listen to this. Listen to another song that another leader of Israel made up at one point when, when something cool had happened. I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. You refused to let my enemies triumph over me. O oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you restored my health. You brought me up from the grave, O oh Lord. You kept me falling from falling into the pit of death. That's a psalm by a guy named David, who also saw God do some pretty cool stuff. You notice the difference? Like, where is God in Samson's song? I've killed a thousand men. I've laid them in heaps. But we're not done yet, so maybe there's hope. Uh, when he finishes boasting, Samson threw away the jawbone. Place was named Jawbone Hill. Samson was now very thirsty, and he cried out to the Lord. Finally, he cries out to the Lord. 
You've accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of these pagans? So God caused water to gush out of a hollow in the ground at Lehi. And Samson was revived as he drank. Then he named that place the spring of one who cried out. And it's still in Lehi to this day. So God makes water come out of a rock. And Samson calls it, hey, that's the place where I called out and got water. As opposed to, that's the place where God made water come out of the rock. This is what I have to work with today. And I have, uh, if you've been following my Twitter feeds, like I have literally been perplexed. Like what is Samson teaching us? Because the picture that is painted for me is a narcissistic, self-absorbed, vengeful, vengeful man who has very little interest in attributing much uh, glory or credit to God. Now granted, we're in the middle of his life, but I'm just saying, like, this is what we have to deal with today. So I have been asking friends, I've been asking God, like, what do we do with this? And I feel like finally, um, I would like to kind of like end with like two little thoughts. Um, my Bible study has been going through the book of uh, Mark for like eight months now. Just really digging into the, the levels of, of scripture and, and, and the story of Jesus. And one of the themes of the gospel of Mark is Jesus versus the disciples, versus the 12. And in Mark, um, over and over again, the disciples don't get it. Over and over again, the 12, the ones who are with Jesus the most, misinterpret, misunderstand what Jesus is trying to do and who he is. And it kind of makes me start thinking of like, well, what do you do when, when the people who are supposed to get it, who are supposed to be the Nazarites, right? The, the people who are supposed to be up here on your pedestals and, and doing things for you and being things for you. What do you do when they're like dweebs and just not making the decisions you want them to make, not being the people you want them to make or be? I was reading something just on, on uh, I think, Thursday. I was talking about the disciples. And, and that little verse... Um, back in chapter 14 of, of the book of Judges, and it says, you know, that God, uh, his parents did not realize that God was working in this Philistine bride, that God had something going on that his parents didn't realize, and I'm pretty sure that Samson didn't realize. That little, that little verse was kind of key to it. And here's, here's the first thought I'd like to kind of leave you with, is that um, God's story is not about Samson whether he does really, really good things or really, really bad things. God's story is not about the disciples, whether they do really, really good things or really, really bad things. God's story is not about you, whether you do really, really good things or really, really bad things. God's story is God's story. And it moves on. And God has an agenda in this world. And it's always going forward. Sometimes whether we get on board or not, and there's a piece of that that's just kind of like, well, man, that kind of stinks. But there's also a piece of it that is incredibly 
liberating and challenging. Because the, the question is not, is Samson ever going to get this? The question is really, is Samson ever going to get to experience what God wants to do? God's going to do it either way. Either way, Israel's going to end up liberated. And either way, this world is moving towards an end. Either way, God is coming back to remake the earth. And the story for us is like, do we want to be a part of that? Do we want to take the best of us, you know, Samson's strength, and say, I want to be a part of this? Or not? And that, to me, is incredibly life-giving. Just to know that, man, no matter how bad I mess up, God is so much bigger. And he's got it in control. And furthermore, when I do mess up, because I do, and the disciples did, and Samson surely did, what does God say to me then? Well, what, does, what did Jesus never do to the disciples? Did he ever reject them and send them away? No. Over and over again, the disciples like, hey, we, we didn't get the thing where you fed the 4,000 people. I don't know. You walked on the water. I don't know. What could it mean? Who could you be? <laughs> and you know what Jesus does over and over again? He says, you guys are not getting this. Now, come on. We have, we have other people to go minister. You did not see. Come on, guys. We got to go over here now. No matter what they do or how many times they fail to see, Jesus just says, I know you're not getting it. Now, come on. Come on. You're still with me. I'm still with you. And when Samson had already crossed the marriage thing, when he'd already broken his Nazarite vow, God sends his spirit powerfully. Now, granted, he sent his spirit, and then he murdered 30 guys. But the fact is, is that God somehow said, all right, Samson, you're obviously having some problems here, but guess what? I'm not turning my back on you. I'm not rejecting you. And it's driven home, and this is kind of where I want to leave us today. Uh, It's driven home for me because sometimes I think we want so bad to be, you know, like God's only going to do this if if I'm right on. You know, God's going, God wants to, wants to do these things through me or these, these things that I believe in. I better get my act together so that, so that God can, can do his, his stuff through me. One day, as, as Jesus saw the crowds gathering, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples gathered around him. He began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they're going to be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they'll inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they'll be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they'll see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they'll be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, it's tempting to look at this and go, well, that's exactly what you just didn't say, Eric, that, oh, I have to, you know, I have to be 
humble and I have to be a peacemaker and then God's gonna bless me. No, it doesn't work like that. See, what Jesus is saying is that in the kingdom, if you are sad, if you are mourning something, if you are cast out, if you are on the outs, if you look like you shouldn't have anything to do with anything good in the world, God's word to you, God's word to us is no, no, no. You are blessed. You are welcomed. You are right where God wants you to be. We want this to be about a gospel of like, well, no, I, I, need, to, I need to do these things so that, so that I can be blessed and I can be welcomed. No, no, no. Jesus says, no, no, no. Even, even if you don't do those things, even if you are a Samson or a, a disciple from the book of Mark, you are blessed. And that is good news. Because if we have to be like that, if we have to be peacemakers before God blesses us, what kind of gospel is that? It's just another gospel of performance. God's radical word to you is like, yes, this is what the kingdom looks like. And even if you're not there right now, you are right there where I want you to be. Can I get an amen? Let's stand for closing prayer. God, your word is so far from simple. Your scriptures are so, so far from being this one-dimensional uh, story. There are always things that we can gather and learn from. And God, as hard as it is to thank, uh, thank you for the gift of the story of Samson because it's, it's very complicated and difficult, God, we do thank you. And God, wherever people are struggling with perfection or struggling with am I good enough or struggling with the things that they've done that maybe line up for some of the things that Samson uh, even did, God, I pray that you drive those thoughts away and in, it, in their place you put, you are blessed, you are welcome. And God, we, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would be continuing to change us as well into the people of the kingdom, peacemakers, um, people who are yearning and hungering for justice. God, I pray that every person here would, would know your love for them today. We pray in the name of the strong, resurrected name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You guys have a great week. We will see you next Sunday.